I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn, please, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. We did a brief overview last week in our study through the Bible. Uh, We've come to Isaiah. We did a brief overview of the first five chapters of Isaiah. Today, we're only going to get through seven verses of chapter 6. This is uh, an epic chapter in the Bible. I can assure you I feel completely incapable of um, saying anything about this. And so I'm asking God to truly set me aside and um, say what he would say to us this morning. I've noticed there's an odd thing that happens at funerals that rarely happens anywhere else. Family members and sometimes friends will, at a funeral, approach another family member or friend. It's usually in the family. They'll approach another family member with whom they've been at odds for perhaps decades. And they will, for the first time ever, apologize for what they've done and try to make amends. As a matter of fact, a friend of mine told me that that very thing happened to her just a couple of months ago. Now, I'm not suggesting that uh, those apologies are always sincere or lasting, but there's something about watching someone you love being buried that sobers you and gives you a jolting reminder of the brevity of life and a reminder that one day you will be in that position. The wisest man who ever lived said it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for death is the end of all mankind, and the living should take this to heart. I had slides for you this morning, by the way, worked really hard on them, and uh, we had a technical glitch back there. Uh, We need to upgrade our computer, by the way. It told us that it can't run our software anymore because it's, uh, it's not compatible with our computer's operating system. So just for whatever it's worth, we, we definitely need to take a look at that. Because it doesn't matter that I put two hours into you know, putting that together. <laughs> Don't think about that at all. That's... <laughs> well, I just wanted to let you know, we're, if you're waiting for the slides to come up, uh, they, they will not be doing so today. Yeah, so the man who partied probably more than any other person in history, Solomon, the richest man, who the Bible tells us, denied himself nothing his eyes saw, tells us that he put on exotic parties, brought in the Backstreet Boys and all the famous people to perform constantly. This guy was a partier. He lived it up. He literally, if if he saw anything that he wanted, he never denied himself. And that man, when he was about to die, said, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. Because it wakes us up to the reality of what all this is about. There's nothing wrong with parties, but I'm suggesting to you that the older I get, the more I have to agree with Solomon. 
You know, it's in times of trouble and pain and loss and heartache that God is able to reach us more than at any other time because our heart is tender and we're ready in that moment to listen. When things are going well, when life seems to be perfect and you're riding on top, and again, there's nothing wrong with being there either. We would all rather be there. But the danger with that is that we will never say these words, but in our thoughts, we will say, hey, God, you, uh, you hang out in the trunk with my spare tire and I'll pull you out if I need you. And we go on with life like we can handle it just fine. And it's not until we have a blowout and we're stuck at midnight in the pouring rain on a backcountry road with no help, so to speak, that we suddenly cry out to God and we're ready to listen. Today we come to Isaiah chapter 6 and we find the prophet Isaiah at a place of mourning and loss. And that period of sadness brought him to the greatest turning point in his life. I want to read for us the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts or the foundations of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house, or literally the temple it's talking about, was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone. That word means doomed or ruined. Woe is me, for I am doomed, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Now, I know that the next verse is the verse that is almost always focused on uh, in sermons, um, the verse where the Lord was looking for someone to go for him, and Isaiah said, here I am, send me. But there's way too much in that verse and in that context, so I'm saving that until next Sunday. But before we get into Isaiah's encounter here that we've just read, it's important for us to know a little bit of the background information uh, leading up to that point. Isaiah provides a a specific detail in verse 1 that it's easy for us to just skip over and pay no attention to at all. He says in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. Why, why in the world is that important? Why is it significant? And how does it play into Isaiah's experience here? Well, 
If we go back, if you want to turn back for just a moment to 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we can get the background of this man, Uzziah. <clears throat> now, I mentioned to you that Isaiah's life takes place between uh, 1 Kings, roughly 1 Kings chapter 15 and 1 Kings 20, around there. And the parallel version of that we find in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And it says this, Now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. And he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And he did, verse 4, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. And then it goes on in the following verses to tell us about all the great accomplishments that uh, came about in the life and the reign of Uzziah the king, all the things that God helped him accomplish. And at the end of verse 8, it says this, his fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for he became exceedingly strong. In the other verses of this chapter, we, we, we won't take time to read them all, but we're told how Uzziah was a great king. He was a brilliant economist. He was a brilliant military leader. Uh, he built numerous cities for the people. He expanded the nation's footprint and influence. He won numerous notable battles. He refortified the wall and the towers in Jerusalem, which represented their security. He, he provide, provided uh, new sources of water and cattle and vineyards for his people. And on and on it goes, listing all the astounding accomplishments of King Uzziah's 52-year reign. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and as long as he did that, the Lord was with him in all he did. And how I wish the story ended there. But it doesn't. Sadly, we have verse 16, 2 Chronicles 26, 16. But when Uzziah was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah, the priest, went in after him, and with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Now pause right there and look up here a second. First, hats off to these priests of God who, who walked in boldly right up to the king and confronted him directly to his face for the wrong that he was doing. Hey, no one spoke to a king like that. If you did, you'd end up in prison or you'd end up dead. But these priests feared God above the king. 
And so they warned him to stop doing what he was doing. Hey, can I just throw in, we need to be praying for more priests, for more pastors in our day who will boldly stand against the evil that is being done by the leadership in this country and this world. I've seen so many pastors just waffle and deflate during this time when the leadership is clearly getting so corrupt beyond comprehension. Church leaders just, yeah, well, you know, these are the times. May God send to us more pastors who like Azariah and his men are willing to stand up and confront evil and call it for what it is. Now, yes, Uzziah was the king, so he technically had authority over everything. Technically, he should have been allowed to do whatever he wanted, but God's laws supersede the laws of the nation. And he was not a priest. He was not permitted by God to go into that part of the temple and light incense on the altar of incense. We studied this a long time ago when we looked at the layout of the tabernacle. He was going into the the holy place. He was not allowed in there, and he knew that. Believe me, he knew that. But he had been a godly man, so what on earth drove him to do such a foolish thing? Did you catch it in verse 16? It told us when he was strong, His heart was lifted up. This is why power is such a danger to human beings. It does something to people. It changes them. I've seen this happen right before my eyes. A powerful, popular person who can remain humble is rare. Second, not only hats off to these priests for doing the right thing, but God is giving Uzziah an opportunity here to repent. In this moment, he could have dropped to his knees and confessed his wrongdoing and asked for mercy. But look what pride and power can do to even the best of men. Verse 19 Then Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and while he was angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous, so they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. Verse 21, King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper. He was cut off from the house of the Lord. How tragic. All his past accomplishments for the Lord had made him proud And his pride not only took him off the throne, but it put him in a leper colony. No wonder James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. No wonder the Bible says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. 
I've told you before, we will either humble ourselves or God will humble us. And I highly recommend you do it yourself. Uzziah had been a great leader. There's no denying that. History bears that out. The people felt safe and secure when he was in charge. But this once great king had been removed from the throne, and now Isaiah tells us that he has died. The people were shaken up by this. There was uncertainty hanging in the air now, and Isaiah, no doubt, was troubled by watching this terrible tragedy unfold. It grieved him to see this godly king absolutely destroy his life because of sin. And so as we step into Isaiah 6 now, Isaiah is mourning the death of this once godly king and great leader. And he, like the rest of the people in the nation, are now greatly concerned about their safety, their security, their prosperity, their future. And it's in that time of loss, it's in that time of national uncertainty that God was able to speak to Isaiah in a way that he had never been able to before. And I would just say to you, so often in our times of trouble and loss and pain and fear, we're far more likely to listen to God than at other times. So let me encourage you this morning, don't despise the hard times. I'll tell you, I was having a conversation this week with a man who... uh, just said, be honest with me and tell me how you're doing. And I had literally just come from a specialist that morning. And I had gotten not great news. And I just, I just poured out on the guy. And I, I just, like, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I wish this would end. And then I caught myself and said, wow, <laughs> I'm being really self-centered right now. I'm being really selfish. Who in the world am I to tell God that this is enough? God, surely we can move on to better things now. Well, maybe not. Maybe I am so stinking hard-headed and stubborn that God says, Phil, you need another year or so of this. I am not done with you. And you know what? At the end of the day, that's exactly what I want. I've told you before, the worst thing that can ever happen to you and me is for our will to be done. Nothing will bring greater heartache and devastation and ruin. And so we must, as Paul said, beat ourselves into submission. This is not easy. No one ever said this fight was easy. We must be willing to beat our flesh into submission, so to speak, and say, God, I want to live as Jesus lived, saying, not my will, but your will be done. It's in these times of hardship, it's in these times of pain and hurting, when you've had more than you think you can handle, that God has your attention And he can speak to you, and he can move in your life in powerful ways. So pray that 
The Holy Spirit will empower you, will empower all of us in times like that to not run from those, to not despise those times, but to embrace them, to welcome them, as James says, to welcome them. Because we know that God never makes mistakes and that he will never steer us wrong. And everything he's doing in our life is for his best, for our best and for his glory. God used this season in Isaiah's life to remind him of something vitally important, something that he needed to hear, something that the people needed to hear. And that was, the earthly king is dead, but the king of kings is still very much alive. And it's as though God is now drawing Isaiah's heart and soul away from those earthly things and pointing him to the one who has all authority and control over all of those earthly things. And Isaiah is given a vision of God that sets his priorities in order. And I would submit to you that we will never have our priorities in order until we truly get a vision of God. Let's look again at exactly what he saw. Verse 1 of Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I love the phrase, sitting on a throne. That depicts so much to us. God is not pacing back and forth, wringing his hands, going, wow, I didn't see this one coming. What in the world are we going to do? He's seated on his throne. It's a picture of control. God in his absolute sovereignty, while below him, the world is in chaos and men are running wild and ruining his creation, God is seated on his throne. It seems that God wanted Isaiah to know that even though the earthly king was no longer in control of things, there's a greater king who is still seated on his throne. And that's a truth you and I need to learn. We need to come to understand. Because there are going to be times when trouble blows our way, when our foundations are shaken, when our heart is full of worry and grief and fear. We need to know That regardless of what we see happening in the world around us, regardless of what may be happening in our own life and heart, none of those things have ever threatened God's power. None of those things have ever unseated him from his throne, and nothing ever will. We trust in the one who is in total control. Then it says he was high and lifted up. Why would it need to say that? Because God is not on our level. We need to understand this. God is not your buddy. Isaiah sees God in his rightful place, high and exalted above all else, even above everything in heaven. He has no equal. He has no rival. He rules and reigns in unchallenged supremacy and authority. 
God alone sits in the very highest place in the universe. All of creation, as we sang this morning, and all of this world's most powerful leaders are just a footstool for God's feet. It always intrigues me to see some, some person get into leadership of a, of a country. A lot of times in third world countries, they'll have a dictator take over, just like what's been going on in, in Brazil. You need to pray for those people down there. They're, they're really getting the raw end of the deal. You see a man come into power and boy, he begins to strut his stuff. And I just sometimes think, buddy, you are nothing but a footstool for the feet of God. That's all you are. That's why you should never live in fear of anyone. I can tell you, I have a lot of faults, a lot of flaws. For some reason, I have never feared people. I don't know why. I just, I I respect people who are in positions over me. I always have, but even in the business world, I never bowed and scraped and played those games with CEOs and VPs. I just never did. And there were a couple of them. It drove nuts. I could see it because I would not, I I would not play the game. We do not need to live in fear of anyone. You understand? No one. No one can touch a hair on our head unless God permits them to. This is why David Livingston, when he left his homeland and went to Africa in the very, very early days, his, his friends and, and uh, family begged him, don't go. There are savages there. There are headhunters there. You are going to die. And David Livingston said, I am invincible until the moment God is finished with me. That wasn't a statement of arrogance. It was a statement of trust. We need never live in fear of any person because no matter how much power a person may claim to have over you, you are held safe in the hands of the one who has all power over everything. Proverbs 21.1 says, Even the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he pleases. And then it says, The train of his robe filled the temple. It doesn't mean a lot to us, but the greatness of an ancient king was often measured by or displayed by the length of his royal robes. You'll often see when royalty uh, gets married, they, they have the longest train imaginable, and they have, you know, a whole a whole warehouse full of uh, bridesmaids back there coming along and carrying the thing for them, you know? And, and what they're saying is, hey, l- look at how much space I occupy. Look at how grand I am. That I've got people coming behind me carrying the hem of my garment. I'm really, I'm really something. Well, back in those days, still in some places today, it was a symbol of royalty. It was a, a symbol of a leader's greatness. But as Isaiah gets a glimpse of God, he says, oh, whoa, wait a minute. This is a train on a robe like you've never seen. The train of his robe fills every square inch of the temple. In other words, there's no room for any other leader or king. All the grandeur of the temple 
is taken up with God's splendor. Oh man, there's so much, there's so much we could say on this. I need to move on. It says then in verses 2 and 3, it talks about these creatures called seraphim with six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And they were crying out back and forth to one another day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These seraphim are heavenly creatures that are beyond our imagination. The Hebrew translation for seraphim is the fiery ones or the burning ones. Now I want you to think about something. These seraphim are in the presence of God. They are sinless beings who are holy enough to be in God's direct presence. Okay? They are sinless beings who are holy enough to be in God's direct presence. And yet they still have to cover their feet in modesty and cover their eyes from the blazing glory of God's holiness. What should you and I do? And all they do is cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You jump forward 800 years to John's writing of Revelation. You know what he sees in heaven? 800 years later, they're still crying out, holy, holy, holy. They're still doing it today. It will go on forever. Because God's splendor and holiness will never come to an end. And then we see that even the temple itself responds to God's power and glory. Verse 4 says, the posts or the foundations of the door or the thresholds were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake. I haven't, but the closest thing I've been in are the fairly frequent, um, I forget the exact term for them, our South African friends would remind me, but in South Africa, they, I don't know if they still do, but they would often have uh, mind tremors. So you'd just be sitting there and somewhere an underground mine would collapse and it would cause a mini earthquake and you would feel these tremors. I remember one day uh, in the office, the, the largest one hit that I've ever felt, so it must have been very nearby, but literally the, the desks were shaking and the, the lights were shaking and people's eyes just were this big and we were all looking at each other like, is this it? Do we need to get out of here? It was, a, it was a rather unsettling experience. But that was nothing compared to what Isaiah is describing here. Not even the temple structure itself. And you go back and read about how this temple was constructed. Not even the temple itself could remain still in the presence of God. It trembled and shook and rumbled. And it struck fear in the heart of Isaiah. You know... As I was thinking through these verses and I came to this part where Isaiah is clearly, clearly struck with fear. And he said, woe is me, I'm doomed. It struck me how little fear of God I see today. I hadn't really thought about it this way before. Churches have gone out of their way to make people feel comfortable 
Now, I'm glad you have comfortable seats to sit in. I'm glad we have heat and air. I'm glad we can keep the rain off our heads. But you know what? If God took all this away tomorrow and we had to meet in a field, I'd be just as happy. Matter of fact, I might be happier because we could take all the money we spend on rent here and we could invest it in things that matter. And I know one of our elders was, is thinking amen right now because it bothers the life out of him that we have to pay for this place. But churches go out of their way to make people feel comfortable as if that is what is going to draw them to salvation. It's completely backwards. The gospel was never meant to make us comfortable. As a matter of fact, if it doesn't make us uncomfortable, something is wrong. People today talk about God in such crass terms, such casual terms. It strikes fear in me when I hear this. Honestly, it does. It's like, yo, yo, God, wait. It's like, what, whoa, what? Psalm 110, Psalm 111, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know what it's saying? That's the starting point. You get into this with no fear of God, you've, you've taken the wrong path from day one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then the last words that Solomon wrote to the world in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 Verses 13 and 14, the very last thing he said to the world was this, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. What is that, Solomon? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. (coughs) Let's not miss what we're seeing here. The psalmist said, the fear of the Lord must be the beginning of our journey. And Solomon said, the fear of the Lord must be the end of our journey. Our whole Christian life, our whole existence should be wrapped up in a healthy, holy fear of God. And until men have a right fear of God, they'll never see the need to turn from their sin. Isaiah shows us the right and proper response to the holiness of God. Verse 5, so I said, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm doomed. I'm ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why, Isaiah? What, What brought all this sudden awareness on? There it is. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. He he didn't read the latest best-selling book about him. He didn't hear somebody's secondhand report about how all this works. Isaiah had the incredible opportunity to see the king of kings. And he said, when I saw him, everything was put into perspective. And I I saw him for who he is, and I saw myself for who I am. Isaiah says, this holy God sees right through me. There's no hiding from him. And he understands now that God's holiness, listen, God's holiness 
is the standard by which his entire life will be measured. And he says, I'm doomed. I don't stand a chance. You understand what I just said? Isaiah realizes that he's not going to be measured by his neighbors. He's not going to be measured by his co-workers, by his success, by his talents. God's holiness is the standard by which his life will be measured. And it put him in his place. See, when you measure yourself against other people, you can always convince yourself that you're holier than them. Well, at least I'm not doing that. But when you measure yourself against God and you see yourself as you really are, your only response is to admit that you're doomed and cry out for mercy. This happened to Job. The Bible says Job was the most righteous man there was at that time. So you'd think he's got it all together. Doesn't need anything else. Doesn't need any new awareness of God. And yet, when all that trouble came into Job's life, God questioned Job. Uh, Job questioned God. And God, in response, simply began to list his holiness and his attributes and his power, one after another, chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. And Job stood there listening to all of this, listening to this description of God's power and might and glory. And at the very end of the book, Job says this, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the only appropriate response to seeing the holiness of God. The closer we draw to God, the more we will see his holiness. The closer we draw to God, the more we will see our sinfulness. The closer we draw to God, the more we will realize how undeserving we are of his grace and mercy. The closer we draw to God, the more our hearts should spill over with unending praise as we give thanks that we have not been turned into ash by his holiness, but that we have actually been invited into his presence through the blood of Christ. Well, finally, it's when Isaiah reaches this place of absolute awareness of God's holiness and absolute conviction of his sinfulness that he's now in the perfect place for God's cleansing work to begin. Look finally at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. All of this is representation of what we looked at back in the tabernacle, the brazen altar, and it all points forward to Christ. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. It's important to see the sequence here. First, Isaiah is convicted about his sin. Then he confessed his sin and then he was cleansed from his sin. He was convicted, he confessed, and then he was cleansed. And what we see here, folks, in Isaiah chapter 6 is the gospel 
And this is exactly how it still works for us today. We will never be cleansed of our sin unless we have first been convicted of our sin. And we will never be convicted of our sin until we see the holiness of God. You read what Ezekiel wrote about his vision of God. It gives you goosebumps. He's stammering and stuttering for words, for adjectives, for ways to describe what he's seeing. And he, he, he can't put it into words. He keeps saying, what I saw was like this. It was like a rainbow. It was like fire. It was like Jasper. He says, I'm just doing my best here. I don't know how to describe the vision of his holiness. You notice Isaiah never gave one physical description of God. He didn't tell us what his face looked like. He didn't tell us any of that because no one can ever see that. God is shrouded in the light of his holiness from which the Bible tells us heaven and earth flee. You read John and his vision in Revelation. He was taken to heaven. He doesn't start describing all the friends and loved ones he sees. He doesn't describe the the river. He doesn't describe the streets of gold. He looks straight at the throne and he falls on his face like a dead man. And he tries to describe it. And again, he's stumbling for words. It's completely overwhelming. And in that moment for each of those men, they were convicted of their sin and aware of God's holiness We must remember, Isaiah was a prophet of God. He knew the scriptures. He worshiped God. He proclaimed the truth. But now he was exactly where God needed him to be. Broken, repentant, and cleansed. We will never outgrow this. Do you understand? I'll tell you this real quickly in closing. Uh, sometime back, I finished up the sermon here. And I, I always forget that people are able to watch this now anywhere live. And about 30 minutes after I left here, I got a call <clears throat> from a friend of mine who's not able to attend. And uh, he said, Phil, I just watched the service today. And it was a, it was a sermon that was... Uh, it, it broke me before I was even able to bring it. It, was, it wasn't me. It was just the word of God was so convicting about where we should be in our life, that we should stop playing games with all this. And this man, who has been one of my mentors for years, started crying. I've only ever seen him cry once in 35 years. And he said, Phil, I've got so far to go. It killed me. The honesty, the raw honesty of this man who knows the Bible backwards and forwards, who used to get up every morning at 4.30 to spend three hours with God before he went to work. He said, I'm not even close. I've got so far to go. Oh, folks, have you and I settled at a place of casualness with our faith. 
Have we been content to just put it in park in our relationship with God? We've got so far to go. Some of you here this morning, you're sitting in this church service and yet you're playing around with sin every day of the week and you think nothing of it. You think God's going to wink at it. You think God's just going to sweep it under the rug because of his love for you. Some of you here, you come to worship and this means nothing to you. You're doing this to earn favor with God or to impress other people. It's time for reckoning. What would happen if all of us this morning said, God, show me a glimpse of your holiness and change me forever. I'm going to invite our music team to come and take their place. And I want to give us an opportunity to do just that this morning. Listen, the greatest thing that could happen to us is not for us to put more church programs in place. It, it's, it's not for us to follow more religious rules. It's not for us to try harder to be good. The greatest thing that could happen to any one of us is to see God for who he really is. And then to see ourselves for who we really are. I can tell you this. I truly believe this. 99% of all the problems I see as a pastor that I try to help people with. Marital problems, drugs, addiction, everything else. 99% of those problems would be solved, would melt away if that person just caught a glimpse of the holiness of God. They would say, I'm done fooling around. I'm done playing games. I'm done being selfish and lying and cheating and faking. I'm done. There's something about getting a glimpse of the holiness of God that changes us. My prayer for us today is that God would reveal himself to us as he really is that we will see him in the splendor of his holiness. I'm going to ask our team, Dale, and our team to just play something right now. And I want you to stand to your feet and bow your head and close your eyes. We don't always do this here. <clears throat> I don't ever want this just to become routine, but this morning, as Dale plays, I'm just going to ask you that if God has convicted your heart this morning about something, and you want desperately, you don't want another self-help book, you don't want to be told you need to pray more, you don't want to be told you need to try harder, you are at a place where you say, God, I'm weary, I'm exhausted of trying to do this in my own strength, of trying to be a better person, and I just keep failing, God. I want you to bring about true transformation in my life, in my marriage, in my, in my, in my home, in my work, in my finances, in my, my integrity. God, I want to bow before you this morning and ask you to show me your holiness. I'm going to invite you right now 
if you mean business, to step out of your seat, to come forward and just come to the front. You can stand, you can kneel, you can do whatever you want to do. I invite you to come this morning and let's get before God and take just a few moments to cry out to him while we have this opportunity. You do that right now. Isaiah was a godly man. He was a prophet of God. And yet it wasn't until this encounter that his life truly changed. Some of you this morning may be resisting this out of pride. You think, oh, I can, I've got this. I can try a bit harder. I know I can do better. I, I urge you folks, I'm, I'm telling you, you're, you're headed for collapse. God, I pray right now in this moment that you would do your work in our hearts, the work that we will allow you to do. What a ridiculous statement that is. And yet, God... You're the king of the universe, and yet you've given us the ability to hold you at arm's length and to say no. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who's doing that right now, I just pray that your spirit would reveal to them the grace that you are offering them if they will just come to you. We thank you, Father, for your unending goodness to us. The fact that you are a fearsome, holy, terrifying God. And yet, through Christ, you have become our Father. And you've invited us to come and share in everything that is yours. Lord, what fools we would be to walk away from that. I pray, God, that you would seal this time into our hearts for your glory. We pray that we would learn as individuals and as a church what it truly means and looks like and sounds like to lift up your name and to glorify you for who you really are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time... May God bless you as you continue to follow Him.